Hello and welcome to Nightlight. We are living in perilous times. We're living in the perilous times of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Of course, we've been living in the progressive movement in that direction for decades. But it seems we're now in the thick of it. Uh, Of course, we may still only be moving towards it. We may not be fully in it. But it's hard to ignore how many aspects of behavior described by those words are now being fully demonstrated on a daily basis. Our concept of the end of the age will have a huge effect on how we conduct ourselves in this ongoing war. If we think of the end, quote-unquote, as the sadly popular idea that things will just get worse and worse, and then suddenly we fly out of here and we will, we will escape. If we think that, we will respond one way. But if we think of the end, quote-unquote, as the growing darkness that has no escape and that we have to go through and face to the end of the age and no telling what kind of horrors we have to endure. If we think like that, we become a, a, a hyper-prepper or even worse, a vigilante. The tendency of many folks seems to be to focus on the bad and feel ominous about it. At least that's what I'm getting from many communications. They're good, godly, well-meaning people, but they seem to be more deeply rooted in the pop Christian end-of-the-age ideas that have grown up uh, with them. They've grown up with those ideas, and those ideas have grown up with them. And... uh, They've been exposed to it. They may not have consciously taken all of that to heart. But now when they seem to be in, in, in the midst of clear and present dangers, the once passive ideas floating around inside their head have begun to take on substance. And, and they're afraid. Anger, by the way, is often an outer symptom of inner fear. Now, I'm not making light of their concerns, uh, though I do reject the eschatology. That's a fancy word for the study of end-time things. I, I reject their eschatology, but I believe uh, I, I believe their, that eschatology helps feed their fear, so I, I don't think it's true. But we are living in seemingly darkening times, and that those times may be leading us into ever darker ones, is a reasonable consideration. Just the flow of passing time will eventually take us to the, quote, end of the river. I mean, we are heading to some kind of climax of history, as we have known it. But that also means we are living in the momentous times of Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, where Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. And I'm probably going to repeat myself too many times, but let me stress this so you get it 
in your mind. You know, most teachers know when, you, you, when you're bored with a subject, it means you've finally gotten it, maybe. But the word and here is telos. It means the completion, the reaching of the goal, uh, the goal, uh, not, not the end of the cartoon, not the end of the runway where you fall off into a canyon. Uh, it means the completion of the goal. Scripture doesn't actually state anywhere that, quote, things will just get worse and worse and then the end of the world comes. Now, some things will wax worse and worse, like evil men and seducers wax worse and worse in Second Timothy chapter 3, or love waxing colder and colder in Matthew 2.12 due to the proliferation of iniquity or lawlessness. And every one of those are topics we could go off on, and I'm trying to restrain myself. Jesus said all these perils will be unfolding while at the same time the gospel of the kingdom will be preached into every nation on earth for as an established witness, and then the end will come. Here I believe the Passion Version has got it very right. I want to read it from the Passion, Matthew 24, verse 12 through 14. There will be such an increase of sin and lawlessness that those whose hearts once burned with passion for God and for others will grow progressively cold. But keep your hope to the end and you will experience life and deliverance. Yet, through all this, this joyful assurance of the realm of heaven's kingdom will be proclaimed all over the world, providing every nation with demonstration of the reality of God. And after this, the end of this age will arrive. And again, there's so much in that that presentation of that verse that I would like to unpack. I'll just say a few things about it before we go on. Uh, yes, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. Lawlessness will get worse and worse. <clears throat> but that does not mean the whole world is getting worse and worse because at the same time all of that's happening, this gospel of the kingdom. That, now let me, let me say this. Jesus is not talking about passing out tracts and giving people a little tiny portion of the gospel called, mistakenly by us, a gospel tract. It might be a gospel tract in the sense that it has a portion of the gospel in it, but it's not what Jesus is talking about here. And I'm not putting down on passing out tracts. God bless that to whatever degree the, the Holy Spirit can, can bless it and use it. And he has in the lives of many people. But what this is talking about is something that we must get delivered from, uh, from, from missing. Jesus is talking about the establishment of his kingdom in every nation on the planet. So that in Matthew 25, he gathers all nations before him. And then, if you, I don't want to digress into a study of the parable of the sheep and the goats, but 
he's judging all the nations. Why is he judging all the nations? He's judging them according to how they've responded to the poor, how they've responded to Israel, how they've responded to the people of God, how they have responded to God himself. They, uh, Unless you believe in salvation by good works, they are being judged by the light they have and how they responded to that light. And I, again, I won't go into all the details there, but I think... Uh, I try not to be disrespectful to all the the attempts we've made over the years, myself included. I mean, I think of the wrong messages I've communicated uh, best I could because I was just preaching what other people preached, and I figured they knew more than me, and I just passed it on. And you know, but I look back on some of the stuff that we've communicated to people. It's no wonder people just don't know what to believe, don't know how to behave don't know what to do in the face of this ongoing, increasing conflict we're in. But Jesus is saying, here, look, it's some things are going to get worse. Yes, they'll get worse. But in the midst of it all, this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached into all the world. Now, let me tell you, how in the world can everything get worse and worse and worse and worse, and this gospel of the kingdom is still being preached into every nation until every nation is is given uh, the light of that gospel so brightly that they're able to see uh, the kingdom of God. And, uh, and then Jesus says, after this, the end of this age will arrive. After this, the end of this age. And again, Jesus is not saying, after that, the world's coming to an end and everything goes to hell in a handbasket. He's not saying that. He said, this is the close of this age. This is not the end of the world. I especially appreciate the way this last sentence is presented, uh, where, where the Passion Translation says, after this, the end of the age will arrive. This is an arrival, not a destruction. The end of this age arrives is not the end of the world, as we tend to use the term. It's the end of the dark, evil, confused, unjust systems of this world, chaos, that we tend to think of as normal life. But it is not the end of the world, but it's the end of the age that has illegally been operating upon God's world. First John chapter 5, the whole world system lies in the hands of the wicked one. Now, Paul unfolds this a bit more in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 through 28, which we've looked at in previous studies, but I want to return to it. He says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his proper order Christ who is the first fruits. Then those who belong to Christ when he appears or who are in his presence now. Then the final stage of completion comes when he will bring to an end every rulership, authority, and power. And he will hand over his kingdom to the Father. Until then, 
He is to reign as king until all hostility has been subdued and placed under his feet. And the last enemy to be subdued and eliminated is death itself. The Father has placed all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. When everything is subdued and in in submission to Jesus, then the Son himself will be subject to the Father who put all things under his feet. This is so that God will be all in all, everything to everyone. Uh, I don't want to go off on the question of whether the Father and the Son are equal. The Father and the Son are equal. This is not talking about some kind of uh, rank of echelon in the Godhead. It's talking about the work of the Son being brought to completion so that he turns the kingdom back over to the Father so that God may be all in all. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, though I'm strongly tempted to spend the rest of our time here unpacking this, I would like to, I will refrain. All I mean to do for now is point out that this scenario does not fit most of the popular end-time charts without them twisting them out of all recognition. Jesus rules now. His kingdom is now. And Paul says in Romans 5.17 that we, quote, reign now in this life by Christ Jesus. We are now his kings and priests, and we have uh, addressed this several times in past studies together, but we are being trained to rule much more obviously through the struggles and battles we must work through in prayer in this age. I had a conversation a few days ago with a young man in Los Angeles who is in the midst of some of the worldly foolishness we now identify with so much that goes on in California. And he said, you know, I spent years, I'm quoting him, I spent years praying for wisdom and courage. I saw many issues that motivated me to pray. But to be honest, I often felt like my prayers were making no headway, and I often felt like just giving up on prayer. But I'm finding now that the spiritual battle is becoming more visible and in my face, that my years of enduring in prayer without many feelings to support it or without much evidence of any change for the better. Those those years have formed something inside me at my core. There is a strength and a resolve within me that was forged by my former struggles when there were no feelings, no encouragements, and no visible change. And I am thankful for that preparation of those times when prayer was an unemotional but real calling that I kept responding to because now I am finding I I have a core power in me to resolutely go forward. As we've said many times in the evidence of the reality of our faith, it's not the easy status quo time, status quo periods of our life that, that tell us who we are. It's the difficult times. And yet, it's the status quo times that make us able to face the difficult times. 
The mundane faithfulness we carry on daily in such times prepares us for the battle that will come. Now on many increasing fronts, it is here for many people. And we don't know if it will crescendo into a bigger conflict or whether it will be successfully resisted and pushed back. But either way, it's allowing all of us to gain a clear picture of whether we are truly believers or whether we just believe that we believe. I mentioned before that rather troubling statement found in Luke 18.8. You know the story. It's the closing statement of a parable where Jesus describes a scenario of a poor defenseless woman who has no standing in society, especially in the courts. But she kept coming to this unjust, wicked judge who kept ignoring her cry for justice. And Jesus says the judge did not fear God and did not fear public opinion. But he finally gave in to this woman, not because of his inner conviction, but just out of the sheer weariness from her persistence. Then Jesus says, Will not God, who is not an unjust, wicked judge, and who is good, will he not bring justice to his own who cry to him night and day? He will, and he will do it swiftly. Notice it doesn't say quickly. It says swiftly. He, he, He may not do it quickly according to our calendar, but once it starts, it will come like a hammer. Then it it says in verse 8, But when the Son of Man comes, will he find this kind of tenacious faith at work in the earth? Now, some translators suggest that that last statement was not the statement of Jesus, but of Luke, who was asking that as a question. Now, if it was Luke asking in the face of that parable, well, When the Son of Man comes, will he find us faithful? That might soften the potential problem of that verse somewhat. But most translators don't buy that idea. So if it is the words of Jesus, it's a bit troubling. I mean, is Jesus wondering how it will all turn out with a concern that it may not go well after all? He is, in my opinion asking a question in his humanity, not his deity. It strikes me as similar to when he would say, for instance, more times than one, by the way, how long must I put up with you? How long will you persist in unbelief? Mark chapter 9, verse 19. Or in Mark chapter 4, verse 40, how long do I have to put up with you? He was saying in the context of, context of the time and place, I, I don't see a lot of encouragement that these people will manifest enduring faith in the face of injustice in, in Luke chapter 8. In the context of their current religious, political, and social conflicts, of which there were many, Jesus' main concern was what his disciples were learning. He was concerned with their confidence in the faithfulness of the Father when things seemed to be slow in turning around for good. 
Will they stand strong in prayer? Will their eyes on the Father stay there? Or will they collapse under the circumstances? I think it's important to notice that this very next story Jesus tells is, I believe, directly related to all this, though it doesn't appear to be related at first. Uh, It's the story of the religious, self-righteous hypocrite who looks down on everyone except himself and mocks the tax collector who is the most hated of all hated political adversaries. We hear these Bible stories and so often we become deaf to them if we ever even were able to hear them correctly in the first place. We just don't get how absolutely hated a tax collector was or how totally focused his disciples were on politics and Roman injustice. So try to place yourself in the right frame of mind to hear Jesus purposefully poking at this sore spot in the disciples. To me, it seems clear that he's saying, okay, will you be faithful to trust God to bring full and true justice in situations and circumstances where there seems to be a long delay and where evil, unjust political leaders seem uh, seem to be in control with no ramifications that they have to face? Or will you falter? Will there be the kind of faithfulness operating in you when everything seems to be hopelessly unjust or with no rescue in sight? Or will you be so full of your typical ethnic and political hatred that you will not see my greater mercy extended to a hated tax collector because you have a preconceived political agenda against him? Will you discern that your hatred is directly contributing to your failure to trust in the face of ongoing evil? Now here's, here's a question. Maybe I'm crazy to say this. What if God answered our cry for righteousness by pouring his Holy Spirit out on Congress and everybody in Congress, Democrat and Republican, ended up on their face weeping before God in repentance? (laughs) How many of us would be happy with that? Well, we might be happy with it at first till we realize that that means they're all forgiven. Nobody's going to prison. Nobody's going to a firing squad. Nobody's going to get what they deserve. <laughs> I'm just just putting that out there. Surely we all see the connection to these questions in our current battle, don't we? Now, don't get this wrong. Jesus was not dismissing the many human reasons for their rage. Just like I'm not and I'm not comparing myself to Jesus. I'm just saying, I understand your rage because it's my rage. But he was not telling them to just live in some religious fairy tale la-la land and ignore reality. He's fully understood their rage on a, on a merely human level. But he had come to take them and us to a much higher, greater, wiser, stronger place of reality called the kingdom of God where we are to learn to live now while still on the earth in the lower realms of kingdom activity in this world. We are being trained the exact same way for the exact same reasons as the disciples. For earthly hatred and demand for justice on human terms was not then, nor is it now, going to bring the ultimate justice 
we all really, truly long for. He was calling them and us to look up higher, to stand in a stronger, wiser place, and to live out the truth of the kingdom that was foreshadowed prophetically in the words of Psalm 37.1. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret. That word fret in Hebrew is a good word. It means don't heat yourself up into a frenzy of anger. Don't fret. Because of the prosperity of the wicked. Then in verse 8 of that same chapter it says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Don't fret. He says it again. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Clay hasn't got that down yet. But we won't talk about that. I'm working on it every day of my life. The entire psalm is a necessary medicine for all of us now. We need to read it regularly and heed it, not just read it. Among other obvious reasons for us not to heat ourselves up is not only that it leads to us sinning, usually, it also blinds us to what may be really going on. It deforms our vision, takes us out of the driver's seat, causes us to cease to rule in this life as we become part of the thing we should be ruling over. Then we're unable to be salt and light, which is our only task in the face of such times. Daniel prophesies of such a time as this in chapter 11 in verse 32 when he says, The people that know their God shall be strong and take action. And those who understand among the people shall instruct many. Then again, projecting into a time closer to the end of the age, he says in chapter 12, verse 10, Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Then verse 3 of chapter 12, They that are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. Stars, by the way, shine brightest when it's darkest. Remember that. The word for wise here is mescaline. The the mescaline uh, is really could be translated teachers. This is not referring to everybody having a teaching ministry behind a pulpit, so 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 called. Uh, but it has to do with being out among the disturbed people of the situation they're in and communicating wisdom and truth while everybody is flapping their wings and screaming and yelling. Uh, they shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they will turn many to righteousness. I think this connected is connected to the prophecy found in Psalm 110, verse 3. Your people shall make of themselves a freewill offering in the day of my power. Another translation says, in the day I gather my army. So the day of his power is the day of the gathering of his army. Put these two prophecies together, and it seems to be saying that at a time when people will be tempted to be overcome by confusion, frightened and deceived, 
the people who have insight from their relationship to God will be strong and they will take action in order to bring light in darkness and to stand against rot as salt of the earth. And these people will make of themselves a free will offering, an army of light in what the King James Version refers to as the day of his power. Not political power, but a kingdom presence in the earth that will eventually overthrow every power, political and otherwise, and all that they contain. Now, I want to spend the next few minutes examining two kinds of people. I don't mean to categorize people, but this is just for clarity, not for locking people into a good or bad identity, but one gathering of people we just talked about, a people who make of themselves a free will offering to God in the day of his power. But I want to compare them to another group, people who are not willing to make of themselves a free will offering to God, but who are willingly sacrificing their freedom for temporary comfort. Jesus, Paul, and others refer to the close of the age as a time of great deception. Uh, Both tell us, with reference to these days, to not allow ourselves to be deceived. Now this clearly implies that deception is not some huge overpowering force that we have no control over. We have some degree of our own volition in whether we are blinded by it or not. Now, this is not always exactly true. We all have been deceived by liars or by circumstances we had no control over where false information was being generated upon us. Uh, we're, we're deceived by politicians all the time that way. But there comes a point where you do have some control over how much of the bilge you're willing to swallow. Uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an exercising of discernment and a taking action. Uh, why would a people who are invited to make of themselves a free will offering to God in the day of his power refuse that invitation and end up making of themselves a people who are a free will offering to deception? I want to do something that I rarely do, except when I think it's going to be helpful. I'm going to read extensively from a study of the dynamics of group manipulation and control of nations. Then at our close, we will examine some of the aspects of this web of lies and talk about how to disarm and dismantle it. How are we to be strong and take action? Well, this study is from uh, uh, Professor Mattias Desmet, and the entire paper is being circulated on the web in many places. I got my copy from, uh, I think, Dr. McCullough's website, but you can find it in many places. You can do your own homework to trace it down and read the entire report if you would like to, and I hope you will. It's titled... Why do people willingly sacrifice their freedom? I quote here. Around the end of February 2020, Professor Desmond started looking at case fatality rates 
and other statistics, quickly realizing that there was something seriously wrong with the models presented to the public and used as justification for shutting down, quote, non-essential businesses and telling everyone to stay at home. The models were greatly exaggerated, the threat of SARS, and by the end of May 20 and 2020, this was proven beyond doubt. For example, the Imperial College in London predicted that if Sweden did not lock down, 80,000 people would be dead by the end of May 2020. Well, Sweden opted not to lock down, and by the end of May, 6,000 people had died with a diagnosis of COVID-19. And I'll add here that we don't know how many of those diagnoses were accurate, accurate and how many of them were politically manipulated. Continued his quote, Strangest of all, Desmond says, was that everyone kept saying that coronavirus countermeasures were based on mathematical models and science. Yet, when it was proven beyond doubt that the initial models were completely wrong, the measures continued as if nothing was wrong and the models were right. Clearly then, modeling and science were not foundational or even part of the equation at all. This, Desmond says, was a strong sign that there was something going on at the psychological level that was really powerful. Another tip-off that something was really wrong was the fact that none of our politicians were taking into account the collateral damage of their, their countermeasures. There was no cost-benefit, risk-reward, and analysis of any of the countermeasures. The World Health Organization did warn that the measures might result in excessive uh, difficulties and even starvation and death. Yet at no time did we ever see a mathematical model that took into account both sides of the coin, the death toll from the virus and the collateral damage of the countermeasures. Without such an analysis, we could not assess whether the countermeasures might be more harmful than the virus, which now we know is absolutely true. Anytime you consider a public health measure, cost-benefit analysis is essential. You cannot make a sensible decision without it. Yet here, such basics were ignored as if collateral damage was inconsequential. What psychological dynamics, dynamics and processes might be responsible for this apparent blindness? After a couple of months, Desmond finally realized what was going on. Society was, and still is, under the spell of a mass hypnosis, a psychological process known as mass formation that arises in society when specific conditions are met. The central condition is a lack of societal bonding. In other words, social isolation on a mass scale, which is precisely what the lockdowns were all about. We were all told that any contact with others, including members of our own family, could be a death sentence. I've heard of people who for over a year have not met with a single person remaining locked in their homes the entire time for fear of contagion. And I will interject here. I have had contact with a number of people whose family members, elderly family members, uh, have suffered deeply uh, in a, a manner that is uh, barbaric. 
and yet it was allowed to go on in the name of science. But social isolation was a widespread problem even before the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Marcus cites a survey which found 25% of respondents didn't have a single close friend. What's more, the loneliest age group were among young adults, not seniors as typically supposed or suspected. So even before the pandemic, Western societies were suffering from a lack of community, which is key condition for the formation of mass, uh, of this mass formation syndrome to emerge in the first place. So we were already well on our way in certain elements, but the pandemic was a great tool for speeding up this process. The second condition is that a majority of people must experience life as meaningless and purposeless. Desmond cites research showing that half of all adults feel their jobs are completely meaningless, providing no value to either themselves or others. In another study done in 2012, 63% of respondents said they were, quote, sleepwalking through their work days, putting no passion into their work whatsoever. So condition number two for mass formation hypnosis was also fulfilled, even before the pandemic. The third condition is widespread free-floating anxiety and free-floating discontent. Free-floating anxiety refers to anxiety that has no apparent or distinct cause. If you're in the jungle and find yourself chased by a lion, you fear and, uh, and your fear and anxiety is obviously caused by the lion. However, when you are socially disconnected and feel your life has no meaning, then a free-floating anxiety can emerge that is not connected to a mental or physical pro- representation of a specific threat And judging by the popularity of antidepressants and other psychiatric drugs, condition number three was also fully in place before the pandemic. The fourth condition is free-floating frustration leading to aggression, which tends to naturally follow the previous three. Here again, the frustration and aggression have no discernible cause When these four conditions are fulfilled by a large enough portion of society, they are ripe for mass formation hypnosis. All that's needed now is a story in which the source or cause of the anxiety is identified and spelled out, while simultaneously providing a strategy for addressing and neutralizing that cause. By accepting and participating in whatever that strategy is, whether it's true or not, People will, with free-floating anxiety, feel then equipped, finally, with the means to control their anxiety and avoid panic. They feel like they're in charge again. Interestingly, when this happens, people also suddenly feel reconnected with others because they've all identified the same nemesis. So they're joining together in a heroic struggle against the mental repression of their anxiety, This newfound solidarity also gives their lives new meaning and purpose. Together, this connection, while based on a false premise, acts to strengthen the psychological disconnect from reality. It explains why so many have bought into a clearly illogical narrative 
and why they are willing to participate in the prescribed strategy, even if that strategy is absurd or dangerous. The reason they buy into the narrative is because it leads to the new social bond. Science, logic, and correctness have nothing to do with it. He goes on to say, through the process of mass formation, people switch off their very painful condition of social isolation to the opposite state of maximal connectedness that exists in a crowd or a mass. This in and of itself leads up to a sort of mental intoxication, which is the real reason people stick to the narrative, why people are willing to go along with the narrative, even when it's utterly wrong, even when they lose everything that's important to them personally. These losses can include their mental and physical health, their homes, their livelihoods, their material well-being. None of it matters when you're under the hypnotic spell of mass formation, and this is one of the most problematic aspects of this psychological phenomena. And I'll add here, by the way, uh, from our point of view, it's not just a psychological phenomena. It is psychological, but it has a spiritual force behind it, a principality of darkness, uh, which we'll, we'll refer to more later. Masses of people become self-destructive through their myopic focus. In a 19th century study of mass formation, Gustave Le Bon, a French social psychologist known for his study of crowds, said, quote, The masses have never thirsted after truth. They turn aside from evidence that is not to their taste, preferring to deify error if error seduces them. Whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim. Le Bon's book, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, takes a deep dive into the characteristics of human crowds and how, when gathered in groups, people tend to relinquish conscious deliberation in favor of unconscious crowd action. He warned that if society didn't take heed and ward off social isolation and anti-religious ideas, that life has no purpose, they would end up in a state where mass formation would become the norm. These psychologically damaged people would take over, which is precisely what we're seeing happen. The key example, of course, is the Nazi regime. Desmond points out that while we typically think of dictatorships arising from the use of brute force and fear, the Nazi regime and also the leadership we're faced with right now, came into power on the back of this deep psychological phenomenon known as mass formation. People willingly participated in the Nazi atrocities because of the psychological state society had been moved into the mass formation phenomena, not because they feared their leader. So it's important to realize that classical dictatorships and totalitarianism arise from different causes. As a general rule, in a classic dictatorship, the dictator becomes milder and less aggressive once dissident voices uh, are silenced. But once he has seized complete power, he doesn't need to be aggressive anymore and can resort to other means 
to maintain control. But in the case that we're examining, the totalitarianism, the slow progressive takeover of people's minds and lives through mass manipulation, gets worse after it's in place and grows progressively worse. As an example of this is Stalin's purification schemes of the 1930s, which led to the death of about 80 million people in a single decade. By the way, the Western news media not only did not report that accurately, but was participating in the evil from... uh, from a distance and became Stalin's cheerleader. We're now at another watershed moment in history where the opposition to the pandemic madness is being silenced. If we want humanity to survive and not succumb to global totalitarianism, we must keep speaking against it because when we stop, that's when the real atrocities will begin. In other words, we haven't seen anything yet. The worst is still to come if we fall silent. Here's another important point. Totalitarians don't stop committing atrocities once the opposition is vanquished. It merely expands to new groups and changes its focus. Uh, Now it's anti-vaxxers. You can all take the vaccine and then there'll be another group that they'll focus on and then another group that they'll focus on. The fate of those who succumb to mass formation and embrace totalitarianism is particularly tragic, in a sense because of another curious thing that occurs. People under its spell often end up agreeing that they deserve mistreatment. You already see some of this happening. I won't go into details about it, but it's, it's part of the mental disorder that is demonically driven. It is the basic, basically the killing of the mind. The psychological process of uh, menticide so degrades the mental faculties that rational thinking is no longer possible, making you profoundly gullible. In this state, you'll buy into any narrative without critical thinking. Mass formation also always ends up creating more of the conditions that allowed it to emerge in the first place. So in the end, people who are under mass formation hypnosis will feel greater social isolation than ever before, less meaning and purpose in life than ever before, and more free-floating anxiety than ever before. Mass formation also erases individuality. The group becomes all-important and the individual inconsequential. Hence, being told you... Your parents or children deserve or need to die for the betterment of society it becomes acceptable and agreeable. Everyone becomes equally stupid, essentially, Desmond says. This doesn't matter how smart or intelligent they were before, they lose all capacity for critical thinking. They lose all individual characteristics. Applied to today, this is shockingly relevant. It helps explain how and why parents are willing to line up their children for an experimental injection that can disable or kill them. Totalitarianism is a monster that always devours its own children. 
Another important point is that typical, uh, typically only 30% of people in a totalitarianism uh, situation are actually under the hypnotic spell of the mass formation. It seems greater, but they actually are a minority. Now this is very important. Please focus in on this. However, there typically are uh, about 40% that simply go along with the program even though they are unconvinced. Now, are you hearing this? 30% buy into it completely and they become seemingly the majority, but they're not anywhere near the majority. They just have the platforms and usually have the cooperation and support of the media, which is... uh, Responsible, As I said a while ago, they, they were Stalin's cheerleaders. Now they are this false manifestation of uh, science. They're, they're the cheerleaders for that. Uh, but there's 40% who don't buy into it, but go along because they don't want to be ostracized, or they don't want to make waves, or they don't want to take upon themselves any personal struggle for the truth. The remaining 30% are not hypnotized and are fully awake and are in opposition to the whole devilish scenario. The so-called ash experiments clearly demonstrate that very few people, only 25%, are willing to go against the crowd no matter how absurd and obvious uh, the error is that the crowd is following. Two-thirds of people are willing to go along with the idiocy. Time and again, mass formation events and experiments show us that there are three groups of people, those who become spellbound and actually believe that the wrong answer is the right answer, those who know the answer is wrong but dare not tell the truth, so they agree with what they know to be false, and those who know the answer is wrong and loudly say so. All of this points to what the answer is, according to Desmond. What dissidents need to do is join together in form and form one large group. That gives the largest 40% group, the fence-sitters who only go along with the program because they're afraid of being ostracized, an alternative to, 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 to go to and to turn to. Most of them are likely to join the dissident and anti-totalitarian group rather than follow the totalitarian mindset that they don't fully agree with. At that point, the mass formation loses its power. The totalitarian state is finished because the neutral fence-sitters, which allowed for mass formation to take root and grow, are now no longer participating in that process. And without mass formation, a totalitarian takeover cannot succeed. Secondly, we must continue to speak out loudly. Speaking out can help minimize the number of people who get hypnotized. It can also wake some up who already are under the mass formation spell. According to Desmond, speaking out has also been shown to limit the atrocities committed. In my opinion, he says, it is not an option to stop speaking. It is the most important thing we can do. Now, it's not easy 
As discussed by Marcus and Desmond, the totalitarian regime has the benefit of being able to control the narrative through a centralized media. Not surprisingly, mass media is a key tool for the success of the creation of mass formation. The third action uh, item is creating parallel structures. Now, I won't go into the details of this, but uh, this is based on the work of Vaclav Havel, who is the former president of Czechoslovakia, who stood against communism uh, in one of the forms that he uh, helped create among his people uh, was covered in a book that he wrote called The Power of the Powerless, in which he said, uh, you, you, you establish uh, businesses, organizations, activities that are free of the control of the system, yet still operating in what's left of the system to such a degree that it provides a place for the uh, compromisers to turn to. Uh, rather than be sucked under by the counterfeit. The fact is, though, that even in the face of the rising powers of uh, these options that we've discussed here, totalitarianism, even though it's unstable, has a long life depending on how much it's resisted, how much we compromise with it, how much we feed it, in the name of personal preference or personal security or personal comfort. So the key to survive outside the totalitarian system uh, while we wait for it to self-destruct is to follow, as he, he describes it, the uh, uh, a combining of forces against it. Well, let me stop here. Again, I hope you will pursue this uh, material on your own and study it for yourself. But let me give some biblical responses to it. First of all, for the believer, there is no possibility of being isolated and cut off and feeling that you are free-floating in uh, a world of lies and uh, purposelessness. If you are feeling that way, it's your own fault. You've got people you can reach out to even if you're isolated. I know a lot of our people uh, who, who listen to Nightlight are, are not part of a vibrant body of believers in their area. There just is not one. But you can always connect with two or three people or you can connect electronically. Uh, secondarily, that's obviously not the best, but it's better than nothing. You can connect with people. You can build a, a network of thinking, praying, worshipful people. And in that action itself, there is a sense of purpose, a sense of focus, a sense of destiny. And uh, not to mention the fact that uh, the fulfillment of having warm, close, increasingly bonded relationships that always arises in a time of conflict like this will build lifelong relationships uh, with people. I hope you can see, uh, as we bring this to a close, that we are now in a time where the church may arise in its greatest identity and greatest demonstration of 
who we are. Not primarily politically, but primarily as people who know their God and take action. We take action in lots of ways. We're not just politically. I'm not saying don't be involved politically. I'm saying don't make that your primary focus. Find out what you can do to serve the poor. Find out what you can do to serve the difficult areas of your area, your city, your town, uh, your rural area. Find out where there are people who are in any need and go and meet that need in Jesus' name. And don't be religious about it. Don't knock on their door and say, Hi, I'm uh, from such and such church and we're here to proselytize you. Just show up in some meaningful way and give a hand. Give help to them. Uh, Support local businesses that are struggling because they can't get anybody to come work because people are uh, happy to take government largesse with no work ethic. Um, Find ways to serve them. Find ways to help them. Find ways to make your message hearable because your actions are truly supportive of the message that you proclaim. There we pray for wisdom. We pray for discernment. We pray for courage. We pray for the strength to be the people who know their God and are therefore able to take action in the face of whatever is coming. We pray, Father, that we will be people of understanding who know what we should do in the face of the times that we live in. And because we understand Uh, we are able to comfort those who don't understand and we are even able to persuade and convert those who are caught in counterfeit uh, thinking or caught in this uh, deception that is demonically energized, psychologically manipulated but demonically energized. We pray, Father, for the mercy of, and grace of God to turn this around so that it, it's uh, a tool of righteousness in the long run. Even though it was meant for evil, God will turn it for good. We ask for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. Lord willing, we'll talk to you next time.